Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, for those who don't know me, I am Peter. And um, hello, hello, Stella, Stella. Um, um, for those who don't know me, I'm Peter. For those who do, yes, I've had a haircut. It is too short. And um, let's just get that out of the way. Um, John, thank you for that prayer. Um, actually, the truth is, I've really struggled with this sermon. And not that I'm a seasoned preacher at all, I won't claim that, but I've done a few. And even though this is a really well-known passage, I've struggled with it. So I'm really grateful for that, and I do really trust that even if I'm a little bit confusing, I hope I'm not, but even if I am, as I've struggled with this, I nevertheless hope that your hearts receive something that God's got to say. So next week's Easter Sunday, I think we probably all know that, and so today is Palm Sunday, and just a week, a week before. Have you ever heard that phrase used, a week is a long time in politics? A week's a long time in politics, and often in using that phrase people mean politics is so volatile that momentum can shift in a moment and a, pro- a politician can go from being sort of prime minister in waiting to a disaster or a scapegoat just often on things that are quite insignificant maybe said the wrong thing on a live tv debate suddenly they go from hero to villain such is the volatility of politics it's described as being a, a long week and i want to try and borrow that phrase a little if i can and say a week is a long time in the easter story Because as we look at the passage today, which is pretty familiar, of Jesus entering Jerusalem, the crowd are euphoric. It is a real high. And yet, actually, in three or four days' time, that crowd, which is shouting Hosanna, as we'll see, are shouting crucify him. It's an amazing change. And I want to look at this passage and try and see what Jesus might be able to speak to us through it. So if you've got your Bibles, um, if you can turn to Luke chapter 19... I'm going to read from verses 28 to 44. So Luke chapter 19. The triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, sorry, sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I'd like to just pray. Heavenly Father, so grateful for your word that you've given to us. So grateful that we can know who you are. We're so grateful of the depth and the richness of your word that we can look at a familiar passage and yet learn new things of you. And Holy Spirit, that's my prayer for this morning, that you would help us understand what's on your heart to share through your word this morning, that we would become people more and more like your son. Holy Spirit, I ask that you do this work amongst us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So I want to look at two really quick things before coming on to the main point. One, I want to look from this passage and see that Jesus announces himself as king. Two, Jesus is welcomed as king. Three, Jesus weeps over the city. So he's announcing himself as king. He's welcomed as king, but then he weeps over the city. And I think that's a strange response. It'll call me by, why would Jesus weep? Why would he weep? He's announced himself as king welcomed as king is that not what he really wanted and yet he weeps and there's something in that which I think we can really learn today so firstly he announces himself as king very quickly in two two ways in Matthew's account of this same story just prior to it Jesus heals two blind men and one of them cries out holy son of David and significantly Jesus does not rebuke him for saying it it's significant because son of David was the messianic name that the Jews were familiar with, which announced the coming of their Messiah. And it's why in Matthew's account he uses that particular name, because he's primarily writing to a Jewish audience. Jesus doesn't rebuke it. When actually, before that in Jesus' ministry, when people would call out him as the Messiah or the son of David, he would. So there's a part in Jesus' ministry where he wasn't yet ready for the public recognition of him as the Messiah. And in fact, in Mark 1 verse 34, we see that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So he was keeping that (coughs) under wraps at that point, yet now, as he's approaching this kind of week leading up to Easter, he's now happy not to rebuke those who are calling him son of David, the coming king. It's significant. You can almost imagine the disciples around him, almost the anticipation, something was changing, something was building. They'd have known that normally he was saying, quiet down, but now there's something changing. I wonder if they were getting excited about what was to come, maybe thinking, now's the time, now's the time, now's the time. He's coming to do what we want him to do. Something was building. So he was announcing himself, as king, he wasn't rebuking that title anymore. And secondly, in this passage, we see that Jesus rides in on a colt, and that is an intentional act of Jesus to f- fulfill an Old Testament prophecy about the way the coming king would first enter into Jerusalem. So Jesus has announced himself as king really clearly. Secondly, and this might be obvious, he's welcomed as king. So we see again that in two really clear ways. Firstly, the crowd just say it blessed is the king. And again, in Matthew's account, they're saying, Hosanna, son of David. They recognise him for who he is. 
Secondly, and this is just a bit of detail, really, you see in the story they throw their cloaks on the floor. That was a custom they reserved in that time, dating back well into the Old Testament, a custom they reserved for royalty. So they knew who he was, and they were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. The atmosphere is euphoric. Jesus has announced himself as king. He's now ready for the public recognition. He's welcomed as king, and yet he then weeps over them. It's such an unexpected response. And I want to ask, why would Jesus weep in that moment? I think probably the best, best place to look is, what does he actually say as he's weeping? And I, and I think the, it's a slightly different translation, which I think makes this bit, a bit clearer. If you've got your finger on the page, look at verse 42 of what we just read, Luke 19, 42. The New King James Version writes it like this. If you had known, so he's looking at the crowd as he's weeping. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I think it's a hard sentence, I'll read it again. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. So there's something that the people are blinded to, something about the things that will make for their peace that they are blinded to, and Jesus is weeping because they cannot see the thing that makes for their peace. What are the things that make for peace that the people have been blinded to that's leading Jesus to weep? And I think there are maybe two ways in which Jesus is saying this. I think firstly, Jesus knows what's going to happen in the coming days. He knows the suffering he has got to go through in the coming days. Jesus always knew the road he was going to walk. This didn't catch him by surprise, but nevertheless, he's now approaching the city. He knows what's going to happen in these coming days. And I believe Jesus had a very real fear of the pain that he was to go through. It's an excruciatingly painful death he was to take on, and he knew it. Michael Wilcock, who's a commentator on, who I read on this particular passage, says this about the atmosphere that day. He says, The atmosphere of the Palm Sunday story... Jesus' approach to Jerusalem among the exuberant crowds is one of euphoria. The people seem intoxicated with the prospect of the coming kingdom. They see it as an unremitting success story with no hint of the suffering on the way. Jesus knew of the suffering on the way, and I wonder whether just seeing the crowds there brought that really close into focus. Suffering on the way, things that he must go through to bring the peace requires the suffering on the cross. If you've got any doubt of the real pain that Jesus went through or thought, well, maybe he didn't really fear it, he's God. Look at what it says in Luke 22. You don't need to turn there. It says, he withdrew, this is the night he was arrested. Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now those in the know will tell you that when the human body is pushed to its absolute limit of strain, it's possible for the human body just to actually sweat blood. Your capillaries are bursting, and the blood just comes out of your pores of your skin. Jesus faced a very painful death. And he knew it was just a few days away. Maybe that's the sense in which he's weeping for the things that these people are blind to that must be done for peace. 
And I think to compound it, there must have been a sense that he's looking at these people, thinking some of these people who are shouting Hosanna in three or four days' time are shouting crucify him. Again, this isn't that Jesus got caught out. He makes it really clear to Pilate that he lays down his life himself. It wasn't that he got trapped into it. He knew it was happening, but I wonder whether seeing the people there, seeing the cries of Hosanna, knowing they are going to be the people saying, crucify him in three days' time. It's amazing. I'm not surprised he wept. I think there's a second way in which Jesus says there are things that make for your peace that you're blinded to as he's looking at this crowd. I think it's they got the idea of peace completely wrong. And I think Jesus is weeping that they've got it wrong. There are things that make for peace, but they've got the completely wrong end of the stick of what it is that truly brings peace. So a little bit of historical context. These Jews at the time, they were waiting for their coming king to bring about freedom. And primarily they were thinking of the freedom from Rome. They didn't want the rule of Caesar. They wanted freedom from people telling them what to do and they were hoping for some kind of military or political leader, a political king, a political messiah, a military one, to kind of just release them from the tyranny of Rome. That was what they believed would be for their peace. So, to put it bluntly, the absence of difficulty, removing a problem from my life will give me peace. Taking away the difficulty, giving me freedom to control myself, to decide what we do, how we live, that's the peace they thought would come with the Messiah. That isn't lasting peace. Jesus comes and he gives a very different, a wonderfully better peace than that. And I think he's so desperately sad that he sees a people that think peace is found in the absence of difficulty. He actually came for something far greater than that. He came with a different peace to give. He never actually came to save them from the tyranny of Rome. He never came to save them from the tyranny of Rome. And almost to make that point clear, he then prophesies about the coming destruction by the Romans to that city. At the end of that passage, he talks about every stone being unturned. And actually, it was about 40 years later. So some of those people in the crowd that day would probably have been alive 40 years later when they were completely decimated. Jesus didn't come to save them from the rule of Rome. He came for something much bigger than that. And I find it in some ways amazing that they got it so wrong. Because I don't mean that rudely, but there's an irony in the story in that the donkey or the colt that Jesus rode on in one way helped them sort of identify who he was. And yet they didn't look at it and think, it's a donkey. (laughs) Like if they were looking for a military leader to come and remove power of Rome, do they not think it would have been someone on a war horse with an army of angels behind him and a sword out in front, ready to take on the might of Rome? They somehow missed it. You know, the, the description's funny. It talks about how this was a cult that had not yet been ridden. So my guess is it probably wobbled about a bit. I don't think it would have been particularly strong. Probably quite small if it was young. Jesus' feet maybe touching the floor. This isn't the image of... <laughs> a warrior coming in to kind of decimate Rome and yet somehow they thought the removal of Rome was what he was coming to do and that would bring their freedom it wasn't that would bring their peace it wasn't he didn't come for that 
If I can use an example, um, maybe to, to make this clear. Think of a patient who's got a headache and they take a paracetamol and they have relief from that headache. It feels better. Imagine if you're the brain surgeon who's done the brain scan and you're about to give them the news that it's not actually a headache that's the problem. There's a massive brain tumour about to take their life. You might be pleased that the paracetamol has taken away a bit of the headache. You might even smile. It's nice that the headache has gone. But the headache's not really the issue. And as that surgeon, you would weep inside because you would know that something far, far more severe was coming to take their life. Jesus didn't come to give us a paracetamol to deal with the problems of our lives. He came to deal with something far, far, far greater. He comes as the master surgeon with a scalpel in his hand saying, there is a tumour I need to deal with. That's the peace he comes to give. He didn't come just to make life a bit easier and to remove the headache. By the way, there aren't any jokes in this sermon, just in case it's quite a heavy heavy atmosphere. Next week, John's speaking, and John's uh, better at that than me. Um, Jesus announces himself as king. He's welcomed as king, but they get it so wrong, and there's, there's weeping in Jesus' heart. He didn't come for the kind of peace they came. They had an idea of the kind of Messiah they wanted, but he comes as a totally different Messiah that they actually needed. He is wonderfully different to the things that we can imagine in our minds. So what was the peace that Jesus did come to bring? Talked about how he didn't come with that idea of just removing difficulty from our lives. The word peace that we use in our English today isn't always done in quite the same way that the Bible uses the word peace. And we often think of peace as being that sort of nice, tranquil feeling or things just feel good, don't they? How was your weekend? Yeah, it was quite peaceful, didn't do much. We can have quite a, a different idea of what peace might mean. But the Bible, when it talks of peace, is often talking about the, the reconciliation or the need for reconciliation with God. Um, the Bible says that we are, were enemies with God. Now, I don't know if you're not Christian here, and you think, well, I don't mind Christianity, I don't mind Christians. I'm not really an enemy of God. I mean, I'm not even sure he's there, but I'm not, at, I'm not at war with God. I'm just not Christian. The Bible says that everyone's an enemy of God. It's not a nice thing to hear, and he's certainly not someone I'd want to be an enemy with. Romans 5, verse 10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So this is not a piece of how do I feel today. This is a, probably a better way of thinking of it is war and peace. Am I at war with God or am I at peace with God? And God says you're an enemy of mine unless you receive the reconciliation work of my son. That's the peace he came to give. It's not like the worldly peace that can move around and you feel good one day, feel bad the next. Jesus says a few things about the fact that what he gives is different to the world. He says in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then a couple of chapters later he adds, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
I'll just read that last one again. I think it's important. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I think two things are really important. Peace is in Jesus. It's not in the change of our circumstances. Peace is in him. And notice Jesus is saying that you will... It's not that peace in him and tribulation and difficulty are mutually exclusive. Actually, Jesus is saying they can happen at the same time. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world, and in me, you can have peace, whether you're going through difficulty or not. That is real peace. That's a much, much bigger thing that Jesus came to give us than simply the removal of some difficulty in our lives. That is real peace that lasts. And when we meditate on that truth and allow it to sink in, I hope that we can become like Paul when he says that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He's content in every circumstance. The reconciliation work of Jesus is completely sufficient in every situation to allow you to be content. He cannot... There is nothing that can remove us from his love. It's amazing. just want to address one point as an aside. I mentioned before how Jesus coming in on the donkey wasn't particularly looking like a warrior, came as a humble servant king. But I don't want you to think that Jesus is not a warrior. I don't want to give you this idea that he's weak or not able to come and fight. Right throughout scripture, we see Jesus described as a warrior. In back in Exodus, Moses says, in Exodus 13, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is, is his name. And as we look forward to Jesus coming again, this is an amazing description of him in Revelation 19, which we looked at at our group on Thursday. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is an amazing warrior. Don't think he's weak. Do you know... When Jesus went to the cross, the Bible says he could have called down legions of angels to save him in that moment. He could have done it. And that's not just a figure of speech. Jesus could have said at any moment, come, and the angels would have obeyed him. They would have done. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for him in those... It's amazing. He was on the cross. He could have shouted, come, and they would have come didn't how did he do it the Bible says this it's for the joy set before him that he enjoyed the cross scorning its shame you know it's the joy of being obedient to his father that enabled him not to call those angels down it's the joy of bringing peace The joy of bringing us back to him is amazing. 
I don't know what kind of response we'll have at the end of this service, by the way, but I hope you want to worship him. He's amazing. John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. That's the attitude I have when I read what he's done for me. I wonder if you're unhappy with that, in a way. I wonder if you're unhappy that, okay, yes, the saving bit, the giving me reconciliation with God, amazing, so grateful to God. But why couldn't he also at the same time give me a nice feeling? Why can't he also at the same time remove the difficulty? Why can't he also take it away? Can't he do both? Why do I still have to live with difficulty in my life? The description I gave of Jesus there in Revelation 19 shows that he is someone who is coming back to deal with all of the evil, all of the destruction. He's not weak. He's a warrior who will come back and deal with it all. And I wonder why we have to wait. We want him to come now. I'd love that to be now. It's a big question. I don't know the answer, but I think there's a hint in the Bible when in 2 Peter, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I wonder whether there's a pause or there's a waiting because Jesus wishes that no one would perish. He will come and judge it all. He will come and destroy all the evil. Life will be perfect paradise. But right now, he's holding back because he wants everyone to find him. He has got no desire for anyone to perish. In the meantime, life is often hard. As we wait for that day, it can be really difficult. It's not just things that are difficult and can make us feel like life is pretty hard. There are other things we wish we had to fill gaps and we think, if only I had that, life would be that bit better, that bit easier. He will come. He will come and bring that perfect paradise but not yet and in the meantime it is hard but his is a perfect peace Isaiah describes it says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock we can trust his peace the reconciliation work he did is perfect unchangeable we've been moved from darkness to light old to new born again, our identity is in Christ, it's completely undoable. It's completely secure. We can completely trust in it so that we can know, like again Paul says, that whatever is happening, I'm still in the love of God. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the peace he has come to give us. To be able to say that, not just say it, it's a verse that we often learn by heart, not just to say it, but to know it's true. That is the work of Jesus, that we can say those things and know that they're true, that he is trustworthy. His peace is an amazing peace. Just want to end with one point. I found when I was preparing this talk, 
it was quite easy for me to kind of point the finger at the Jews that day and think, how did they get it so wrong? And in fact, even in this talk, I said that phrase, how did they get it wrong? They had three years with him. They had such privileged access to him. How did they miss it? How did they have this idea about the king they wanted him to be when he was so wonderfully different to that? I found it easy to point the finger, and I wonder whether you do too. But let's not do that, because actually... I need to ask myself the question, I've welcomed Jesus as king in my life, but do I sometimes try and make him into the king that I want him to be? Or do I actually embrace everything that he has come to give? Do I accept that his ways are higher and better than my ways? Or do I try and sort of cling on to bits that I would like to remain in control of? I want to make Jesus enthroned in my life. I encourage you to make Jesus enthroned in your life. Put him rightfully as king over every part of your life. You can trust him. You can completely trust him. When life is tough, don't be tempted to climb back on the throne. Submit yourself to him. He is good for you. He's completely trustworthy. The work he's done can't be undone. You're completely safe in God. I'm convinced absolutely convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no change in the economy, no change in the government, no change in my finances, no change in my relationship status, no change in anything about my job, nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And ask Matt if he wouldn't mind just coming up, maybe, Matt, just to play. Is that okay? Sorry, I didn't give you any notice of that. Um, I think it would be good just to worship. Um, and I'm putting Matt on the spot. I am sorry. Um, I think it would be good to respond and worship. I want to worship Jesus for what he's done for me. You might not know who Jesus is today, really know who he is. I want to encourage you, get to know him, come to him. He is wonderful. He is completely wonderful. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.